All right, if you would take your Bibles and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in 27 through 30 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 30. Let's pray. Father, we gather together this morning. Maybe we came in here not realizing how, not only how dependent we are upon you, but how, how desperate our souls really are for your salvation. And I pray, Father, that today, for the believer, that we would be reminded of just how how good you are. We've, We've tasted and we've seen that you are good. And may we be reminded all over again of of your mercy really being more than our sin. I pray, Father, for those that are here that do not know you as Savior. That your word would not return void today. That it would go forth, not not from me, Lord, but as we just examine your word, the teachings of your Son, that the law that you wrote would pierce the heart. And today there would be, uh, today would be the day of salvation. So those are big things to ask, but I thank you that you are big enough and great enough to handle those things, Lord. So I pray that as I preach that you would uh, just feed my anticipation, Lord, of what you will do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me remind you of the context uh, that we've been looking at here. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is, kids, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And it contains um, what Jesus believed and what he taught. I think it's uh, a, a summation of everywhere he went. These are the things that he said. Um. He perfectly bridges the chasm between the old covenant uh, and the law that uh, that Moses brought and the new that is uh, ushered in by his death and resurrection. I believe that Christ's objective from verse 17 on, which reads, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Uh, is to lead us to the cross. And I believe that Christ uses the law in this regard to expose us. This is the opposite of what the teachers of the law in Jesus' day would teach. Uh, John Calvin, commenting on this section of Scripture, says, The Pharisees instilled into the people the erroneous idea, or the bad idea, that the law was fulfilled 
by everyone who did not in external act do anything against the law. Jesus pronounces this a most dangerous delusion and declares that an immodest look is adultery and that hatred of a brother is murder. Now, we want to believe that we aren't really lawbreakers, but Jesus is going to prove this otherwise. In fact, this section of Scripture is bookended between verse 20, if you're there, take a minute to look at it. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the other bookend is verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Doesn't that seem like a tall order? Your righteousness has to be greater than the most righteous people in your day. The most righteous people you've ever known. You have to have more righteousness than them. In fact, you just have to be as perfect as God. And if that's not enough, in the middle, in between those bookends, Jesus exposes our lack of righteousness, not externally, but internally. Last week, John pointed out that it wasn't just the act of murder that made us guilty of murder before God, but rather just the anger we felt toward another person. God counts that anger as murder. So, the one standing before you today is a murderer. In fact, I'm a serial killer. Because daily, in one form or another, I'm lifting the knife over adversaries. Every time I get angry. My own thoughts betray. My own thoughts display that I am most suited for an eternity in hell. But I'm not alone. When we feel the weight of this, Christ's remedy in that text was for us to abandon all forms of external worship in order to make amends with people that have a problem with us. Have you ever seen anybody do that before? Honestly. You're on your way to church, or they're on their way to church, and they stop going because they remember that somebody is offended by something that they've done, and they don't go to church in order to make amends with someone. If you think about it, our biggest adversary, the one who has the biggest bone to pick with us, is not another human being. It's God. And so it's, it's kind of funny because it's not, it's not your religious duty, it's not your, your worshipful acts that make you right with God. It's you running to God. He's the one that's offended by us. So I think in this way, Christ points us to our need for Him as a Savior. And if that wasn't enough, He just moves to another law. And that's what we get in verses 27 through 30. So notice with me these verses. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So he quotes the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Or to put it positively, always be faithful to your spouse. Well, there are many people who have been this way externally and could even feel some sense of pride in how faithful they have been. But that's not the purpose of the law. The law was not intended to feed our pride. It was intended to lead us to the cross. So Jesus takes the law to its intended end. He says, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent is breaking the law of God. It is, I believe, necessary to really consider what he's aiming at here. Because even now, possibly even in this room, there are those who still think, that they haven't broken this commandment. So we pardon ourselves from this by debating the purpose of the phrase lustful intent. So we find creative ways to lust. And they go something like this. I'm not lusting. I'm just looking. You ever heard anybody say that before? Maybe you've said it. Or, ladies, this is only for men, since he was talking about looking at a woman. Women, this is not a this is not a problem just for men. It's not. I was trying to think how to do this without getting tomatoes thrown at me. But the reality is, uh, other than in, in, in around unbelievers, you get, a, you get a group of men together, they don't make comments about the looks of women. Unbelievers are different, but... Ladies, sometimes you just open up your mouth and say things that you probably shouldn't say. Making comments about the way... I'm come by this... Honestly, I have a house full of little girls and I've warned them. We've talked about this. We watch a movie and and there'll be some very good-looking man on there and out of the mouths, these little girls are saying things, making comments. And it's like, you know, you have to be really careful. Because, you know, little girls are like, oh, it's kind of cutesy, you know. No, that's just lust. That's lust. So it's not just something applicable to the men, though that is the way Jesus addresses this. Or we say, I couldn't help it. I I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. She just stood up right in front of me and there was nothing I could do about it. Or how about regarding pornography? It's only a magazine. It's only a magazine. 
It's just the computer screen. I'm not actually looking at a person. I'm just, I'm just looking at a magazine. There's not a real person there, so it doesn't count. Or maybe if we're single, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not married. The sin of adultery is a sin only married people can commit. So I'm off the hook on this one. Or to the married. By the way, I've heard these excuses before. So I'm... God understands that my spouse just doesn't fulfill my needs. What I'm doing by looking, it's not bad. It's natural. Or we just, we just table the discussion. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm college, when I was in college, we would we'd get into these theological debates over and wrangle over words, and, and this is one. What did Jesus really mean by lustful intent? And, and you, could spend, you can spend hours debating exactly what the parameters are for lustful intent and walk away and not be changed by the text. And not sit back and go, there's something really obvious here that he's pointing out. Or maybe we just creatively spin the concept of sin. I'm only human, just like everyone else. It can't be that bad, Right? If everyone's doing it. Or maybe we just blast God. What, is God going to throw the whole world into hell because they looked at someone? If lust is that bad, then God needs to lighten up a little. He obviously hasn't had a whole lot of fun. But what I've described here is not legitimate excuses, but instead given a commentary on the human heart. There is no remedy for the deceitfulness of the human heart. It is so desperately twisted that we actually find some kind of excuse for what is clearly and obviously wrong and even slump to believing that God has as lowly a view of sin as we do. Well, there's a news flash here. He doesn't see our sin the same way as we do. In fact, his view of our sin is the only view of sin that matters. Has that thought ever occurred to you before? That it really doesn't matter what I think of my sin or my excuses for my sin. God's view of my sin is the only view that matters. And if we haven't fled to the cross, then His wrath for our sin remains on us. We, ladies and gentlemen, are in trouble. And excuses are like weeds. As A.W. Tozer puts it, the human heart is heretical by nature and runs to error as naturally as a garden to weeds. I think that the word perennial is debatable. We will spend money and plant things in our garden that we can't get to grow every year like it's supposed to. But what always is there faithfully are the weeds. And they come up like clockwork. 
And I think our excuses for sin are no different. I'll give you some questions to consider in all this. Does anyone disagree with Christ's teaching on adultery? Do we think that his assessment of our sinful thinking is incorrect? Are we, are we really committing adultery when we have lustful thoughts? Are we really committing adultery? What's your opinion of someone who has lived with a dozen different partners and is, now, and is constantly being led from one empty sinful relationship to another? Stop and dwell on that for just a second. If you count up how many lustful thoughts you have in a day and then compare that to the person who has lived with a dozen different partners, do you see yourself any differently? Well, this is where we have to diverge a little, right? We are so desperate not to be in the same camp with someone who is excessively immoral that we would say something like, I may think it, but they've acted on it. And once again, our heart has found yet another wretched excuse for sin. According to Jesus, if you think it, You've already done it because God finds you guilty for it. Now, you may think that such conclusions are very extreme and may be unnecessary, but I don't think so. In fact, the reason I say that should be apparent from notice the next two verses. Notice verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members then that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, today, I've come equipped for this. I have, uh, I have a Sawzall here, so just so you know, it works. I've got a short blade for uh, little people. Uh, it's a little sharper, too. It'll go a little faster. And then I have a longer blade that's a little bit more, it's dull, okay? Um, it's kind of a multi-purpose. I use it on some metal things, so it's, uh, it's not very sharp. So it'll take a little bit longer. But if your wrists are big, we'll get all the way through it. So um, who, who's first? Come on. Don't we take Jesus literally, right? I mean, it... it if we look with lust, we've committed adultery. I believe that. Nobody here disagreed with that. What's Jesus' conclusion? Cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And some of you are saying, Jason, put that away. You're going to put somebody's eye out. Perfect. Two for one. Right? Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, plug it out. Well, we clear the table right here. First volunteer. I mean, eventually it's going to get harder because everybody's going to have one hand, right? You know, it's, you know, it's going to be hard to run that with one hand. 
and you guys are going to, maybe the elders can hold people down. Would that work? Do that? I'm not seeing any volunteers. Nobody, who wants to obey Jesus? Come on. Okay. Maybe not, right? Okay, well then, what did he mean? Because he did say it. The Holman Christian Standard Bible Study Note says, Self-mutilation and amputation are not effective ways to overcome sin. After all, sin arises from a corrupt heart rather than flesh and bone. Now, that seems like a relief at first, doesn't it? Okay, okay. Jesus didn't mean this literally. Okay, everybody, you can take a deep breath. Jason's not coming after you with a sawzall. In fact, this form of communication is called hyperbole or an extreme exaggeration. But before we relax too much, consider that cutting off a limb or ripping out an eye would be simple solutions to sin. If that's where the source of sin came from. I believe that because he didn't mean this literally, that it actually heightens our extreme condition because the thing that needs such desperate mutilation is not my hand or my eye or my foot, but my heart. And I almost missed this when I was... Studying, I, I had, I was, I mean, I was addressing the heart, you know, earlier in the in the sermon, and then, it, I mean, it wasn't until later that I went back to verse twenty-eight and like, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is, by all means, a heart problem. So, what qualified us as murderers? It's the thoughts of anger coming from the heart. Why do we have such a trivial view of marriage in the next section that Pastor John will deal with? What's the problem? The problem's the heart. Why are we so loose with our words and so prone to lying? It's because of our heart. Why are we so lax in our commitment to loving others, especially those who are our enemies? It's the heart. That summarizes the rest of chapter 5. Jesus is calling for the radical mutilation of the heart. This is nothing less than a call for the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. This is the radical call of God upon a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, to have the heart of stone removed and the heart of flesh instilled. Jesus is taking the law to its intended application in order to awaken us to our desperate plight before a holy God. And I want to see, I want to show you how this is played out in an extremely uh, compelling passage. Go with me to John chapter 8. John 8. John records this account. Let's pick it up in verse 2. Early in the morning, he, that is Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. So is Jesus disregarding the law? It seems like that. The Pharisees were right. An adulterer is deserving of death. It's in multiple places in the Old Testament, inside the law. They had the right, right there, to stone her. They did. So did Jesus refuse to stone her because he was guilty just like them? Because obviously, whatever he wrote in the ground made from oldest to youngest turn away. I would have loved to have known what that was. There's speculation all over the place as to what it was. My guess is that he was starting with the oldest one, wrote down all, the, all of the uh, adulterous relationships that Pharisee had had. Because these guys were Pharisees. They only cared about the external. Inside, they were full of dead men's bones. These guys were not moral people. In fact... My guess is that probably one of the, of the Pharisees was with a woman committing adultery in order to trap her, in order to trap Jesus. That's my guess. I don't know. But whatever it was, it caused those very guilty men to drop their stones and walk away. They weren't going to deal with this. It had to be that they understood that they themselves were guilty and couldn't actually throw a stone at this woman. We know he didn't ignore the law. In fact, we saw that in Matthew 5. He came to fulfill it. So what we need to know is that for that adulterous woman to walk away that day with her life intact was a direct result of Christ's pardoning of her sin. Christ's pardoning of her sin is the direct result of God dropping his charges against her. For only God can forgive sins. The only way God could possibly drop his charges against her for her sin was because something satisfied his justice. And there's only one thing that satisfies the justice of God. There's only one person whose substitutionary death caused God to smile on me. Me. Wicked, disgusting, perverted me. Let's take a minute. Let's look at Revelation 5 really quickly.
You won't be here long. Revelation 5. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by you, Your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I get, I get to go to heaven someday. I get to go to heaven. And there won't be a blemish on that resurrected body. Not a single one. But 2,000 years ago, <laughs> a resurrected Jesus held out his hands to a doubting Thomas. A resurrected Jesus Place your hand in the holes. If we right now were to be transported to glory just like John was in the book of Revelation and we were to stand right there in those myriads of myriads, we would see the Lamb standing with all the marks still on Him of being slain. Cutting off your hand won't fix your problem. But a a crucified Messiah will. 
and blown away at what's been accomplished for us. You can't hide from God. I mean, I know there are things, I mean, if we, if we actually all be, sat around and began opening our mouths and confessing things that we've thought before, we could never look one another in the eye ever again. Jesus went to the cross for that sin, for my sin, for your sins. And God is satisfied. So that woman caught in adultery walked away that day with her life. She actually had life now. Jesus didn't throw away the law. Somebody died for her sin. Somebody died because she sinned. And it was Christ. Same offer still stands today. Let's pray. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you. In the watches of the night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Father, we live in a dry and thirsty land where all around us people are just flooding for whatever satisfies them next. And we've been in that flood. And we're left just as thirsty and just as broken as we were before. May it be today that we would leave here being fully satisfied in you and you alone. Because your loving kindness is better than life. So I pray, Father, that today in this room that we would leave stuff here. That we would walk away with burdens lifted. Not because we become perfect people or that we make perfect choices, but because, because you have been satisfied completely in your Son, Jesus. And that we, the wretches, would call on your name and be saved today. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.